0: Hello again, everybody. My name is Ab Abercrombie. I'm the director of the Biblical Counseling Institute, and I want to welcome you to our weekly podcast that we call Ask the Biblical Counselor. Our ministry is supported by uh, Faith Family Fellowship, a Southern Baptist congregation in Spanish Fort, Alabama, and we're always thankful to Pastor Joel Faircloth and his staff and elders for their great support for our ministry. Uh, Our ministry exists to train uh, Christians in how to engage with one another biblically. Uh, We believe that counseling belongs to the church and that counseling is not just for the professional counselor or the pastor to execute, but for every Christian who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit and has a capacity to learn and apply scripture in ways that are accurate and helpful To other Christians, you know, biblical counseling is critical in today's world, not only for evangelism, but discipleship. And each of us should be equipped with the knowledge and application of God's word as best we can be so that when God gives us an opportunity to speak to someone uh, in a way that is um, biblical and uh, critical for their lives, we will be available to do so. So join us today, and let's, let's talk about some things that I think are, are of some importance. You know, each week we try to take a question from one of our listeners, but as we're coming near to the end of 2020, um, I thought it would be important to talk about uh, a couple of issues the last couple of weeks here that would uh, help us all in a, in a more generalized way. Um, 2020 has been a challenging year, certainly, and we've addressed... A lot of that just in the course of our podcast this year, dealing with the coronavirus and the political climate, the election, these kinds of things. Um, There's been so many uh, hard challenges this year, and we have to contemplate them as Christians. We have to contemplate them spiritually and what all of this means. And certainly among the things that it means is that we as believers, we as the church of Christ, must really be attentive to our own hearts, our own status before the Lord, our proximity to Christ, and we should truly be growing in Christ, growing in righteousness, growing in the pursuit of holiness. And that's really what I wanted to talk about today is this process of sanctification looking into the new year. I'm I'm not one much for New New Year's resolutions. I think they're kind of worldly in nature because usually they uh, have something to do with stopping or changing a bad habit or or starting some more positive habit like uh, eating less and losing weight and going to the gym and getting healthy. Well, These are good things. There's certainly nothing wrong with those goals. But... I think we, we want to go a little deeper than that, really, as Christians, and we want to examine our hearts and and see where we are in our walk with Christ, because going forward, our greatest aim should be to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in his great gospel, and we should be focused uh, on him. We should be focused on how to live in such a way, grow in such a way that amplifies his great name and gives us uh, a greater testimony before the world. The the world is literally dying for the gospel. They're dying for the proper representation of Christ. And uh, I pray that we would be about the business of growing and changing in such a way that Christ can be illustrated in the daily discourse of our lives. You know, there are two kinds of sanctification. The word sanctification uh, literally means to be set apart, to be set apart uniquely, uh, to be set apart perpetually and forever, um, to be different. And, you know, when we are born again, when we become converted, uh and our lives change and we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a positional sanctification. In other words, we have been moved positionally from a state of unbelief to a state of faith and conversion. And at that point, we are forever more uh, a child of God. We are forevermore a follower and discipler of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, in fact, in John 10, that after that point, no one can snatch us from the hand of Jesus. He said, in fact, no one can snatch them from his father's hand. And so it is a great and incredible act that God makes when he conveys his grace upon us and we are sanctified, moved, moved in status, moved in identity and moved in new capacity move toward the newness of life so that we might live in such a way to illustrate our sharing of death with Christ and our sharing of resurrection with Christ as we walk as new people in this world. But the second type of sanctification is one that should be a natural byproduct of that positional shift. We've come to be in Christ We belong to Christ. We are forevermore his and can never again be lost. And with that, there should be a change of heart, a change of focus. And we hope to see a a great development of two primary things. One is a hatred for sin, a hatred of sin that drives us to very quick repentance, to a pursuit of, uh, of holiness, God said in his word to be holy as I am holy, Um, but it also should drive us toward the pursuit of righteousness, a love for righteousness, a love for the kinship of, of integrity with Christ. So there's a hatred of sin, a love for righteousness that should be a natural byproduct of our conversion, and we should be about the business of growing and changing in Christ day by day. We're probably not, unfortunately. Unfortunately, we have days, sometimes even longer periods, where we are flat, um, detached, hardened even to the word. We certainly remain sinful. We will not be perfected until we go home to be with the Lord. But the fact that we are not perfected, certainly provides no excuse for us to languish in sin or to continue to sin. Paul wrote in Romans, he said, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound more? May it never be. We cannot become calloused or careless about our sins, but we should seek to put them away quickly. We should seek to resolve and put behind us certain repetitive and willful sins that have been great burdens in our lives and perhaps burdens in our relationships and our functional aspects of life. So God is calling us in this progressive sanctification always. He's disciplining us and shaping us and carrying us along so that we might begin to develop a character and integrity that emulates the Lord himself. You know, uh, in, in Romans, I'm sorry, not Romans, Hebrews uh, 12, I'm sorry, I'm going to correct myself again, Hebrews 4, the Lord says in his word uh, that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Then listen to what he says next. He says that there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So listen to these two verses, because first he references the word of God. It's living and powerful. It pierces, it divides, it, it addresses itself to the, soul, and spirit to joints and marrow. It affects us physically, spiritually, and it exposes the thoughts and intentions of our inner hearts. What do we really think? What do we feel? What do we lust after? What are our desires? Where are we in agreement with God? Where are we in opposition with God? These things lie within us, and the word he's saying exposes that. The word of God holds up a mirror before us that shows us not only who we are superficially, but over time it pierces that outer layer and begins to show us our our true and prevailing character. Uh, Then we're told that no creature is hidden. No creature is hidden from that examination. Even if we don't read the word, we still are seen and known by God, and it is to him that we must give an account. Now, certainly each of us are accountable to others. I'm accountable to my wife, to my daughter, my granddaughter. We're accountable to people in ministry, our employers, friends, relatives, and so forth. But ultimately and always, we are accountable to Christ, most especially when we are converted and and professing Christians and we're seeking to follow after Christ as a disciple as a true one who is devoted to the Lord and our account to him will be measured one day won't it that we all will give an account for every word every deed and uh, we will give answer at the throne of Christ for who we have been in Christ now We don't have capacity for this change. I can't put away really bad habits and sinful uh, conduct or even sinful heart conditions until I'm converted. I might can control some of them. I might can manage some of them. I might can even break a bad habit or two. But the true freedom and putting away of sin and, and problems of integrity Uh, really can only be accomplished in Christ. Remember that in Christ, yes, we are still fleshly. We are flesh uh, until we go to be with the Lord, but we're also spirit. We are flesh and spirit once we are converted. And as a result, our capacity for change and growth is forever transformed because Christ resides in us by his spirit and instructs us by his word we have a potential that we didn't have before we knew Christ, and so the things that we might have sought to do that we considered right and correct are far uh, more achievable in in our relationship with Christ because joined with Him, we come under His yoke, we walk as He walks, we turn as He turns, and we begin to be influenced uh, more and more by His working and by his uh, drawing of us to his purposes. Now, there are a couple places in scripture that I, I really have enjoyed reading uh, through the years. I, I, and, and one of them has to do with King David. King David uh, made a prayer <clears throat> in Psalm 7. And in that prayer, he describes his heart to God. And he claims a position of righteousness and integrity, and he asks God to examine and assess the content of his character. In Psalm 7 eight, King David prayed. He said, the Lord shall judge the peoples. And then he says, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. So. It's a bold prayer. David is saying to the Lord, Examine me, judge me according to my righteousness. He's really saying, Judge me according to your holy standard of righteousness, judge me according to my integrity. Now he is presenting the position that he is walking in righteousness and integrity, or at least seeking. To do so, but he's placing himself before the Lord and asking the Lord to show him who he is. In the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which I usually prefer, it says, To vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. Now, that is a plea, basically, to find me innocent. Vindication means to be found innocent, to be found absolved of any guilt. And he's saying, find me innocent according to my righteousness and integrity. Well, none of us will be found innocent. That's true. And and understand, too, that King David is is not saying, as an unconverted person, judge me according to my righteousness and, and integrity. He's not saying that his salvation or his eternity rests upon his capacity for integrity and righteousness. He's saying though that as a believer, as, a, as one who is a man of faith committed to God, devoted to God, following after God, judge me according to your standard as one who shares your spirit, one who uh, seeks to be like you. And so it's not an issue of salvation or condemnation that David is grappling with by saying, judge me and either save me or condemn me. He's saying, because I am saved and because I belong to you and I have faith in you, now judge me, Lord, as your child, according to your incredible standard of holiness. The the entirety of Psalm 7 reveals that David is under great attack and persecution. Uh, and and his position, King David's position is that this attack is unwarranted, and he calls out to God to find him guiltless. But in verses three and five of uh, Psalm seven, David says that if he is guilty, he says, "If if I've done this thing, this thing that is unrighteousness and un, un, unrighteous and ungodly, uh, if I is there some expression of injustice or evil." Let the consequences stand. He said, if I am guilty, he said, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. That's a pretty high standard of examination. And he's saying to the Lord, if I'm guilty of these things, then let the hardships around me continue. Now, The discipline of God falls upon those he loves. The Bible is very clear about that. Um, And certainly, as believers, when we sin, especially when we fall into repetitive or willful sin, we can surely expect that the Lord's hand of discipline will come and affect us. And he can lift his hand of cover. He can also provoke uh, responses in the world to our disobedience but they're there they come as an expression of his correction in um, John 15 he says that in fact that the branch that bears fruit God will prune so that it bears more fruit and so sometimes discipline comes in response to sin sometimes it comes as a an aspect of building our character and shaping our our uh, orientation toward righteousness but king david says if i'm guilty of these sins and these my enemies' attack is based upon my ungodly condition then let the attack stand he's willing to receive whatever the lord requires now Look, David knows that he can make no claim of integrity based upon his behavior alone. He knows that by inviting God's examination, his heart is going to be tested. It's going to be laid open, laid bare, as the, it says in the Hebrews, and no outward sign or measure of conduct alone will do. God is going to test the part of the man that no one else can see. Now, that should provoke great reverence in all of us that god sees the man's heart he sees my heart and no matter what i can convey or manage externally the lord knows the true source of my being my essence my character and and and, and you know that in 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 psalm 15 again king david writes uh, about this reality he says oh lord who may abide in your tent? Who can come near to you, God? Who can come near to your dwelling place? Uh, he says, who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2. Notice that there is a reference to how one walks. There is consideration of the work of one does, but clearly these actions must be found in agreement with the truth that is in the heart. So we cannot walk in any continual and perpetual manner that is inconsistent with our hearts and who we are internally. If we go back to Psalm 7, King David is asking God to not only evaluate his behavior, but test and know the intent of his heart, which he claims will reveal innocence. You can't fool God. As the Lord told the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17:10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. The Bible tells us that the deeds of the flesh are evident in Galatians 5. But you know what? The deeds of righteousness are also evident. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, they will be evident in a hardened world filled with unbelievers. They will be evident within a church where some people may be converted, yet hardened and backfallen. They may be struggling with personal sin. Now, we don't convey the fruit of the Spirit in order to elevate ourselves or to to shine in such a way as to gain personal credit. The fruit of the Spirit should be a natural byproduct of who we are in Christ. And the closer we are to Christ, the greater our proximity to him, the greater will be our spiritual fruit. You can't manifest fruit like that on your own. You can't will yourself to be loving and joyful and patient and kind. Only God and your proximity to him through Christ Jesus can provoke such an outpouring. Our proximity to Christ will determine everything, everything about who we are as Christians, how we live and express ourselves as believers. It will define our consistency and will define our true character. And as King David prayed, it will convey our understanding of righteousness and it will convey our position of integrity before the Lord. It is the heart that defines our righteousness before Christ. The heart reveals our true integrity And David was ready and confident that a survey of his heart would reveal a character worthy of defense. I thought about how do you define integrity, and I I wrote that uh, it's a condition of honesty with moral uprightness. Uh, I think that it conveys one who is undefiled. Unimpaired and solid in construction, his foundation is good it 's one who is undefi- undivided undivided in other words he there's no idolatry, there is no devotion to another uh, source of sustenance and care, only to God and so integrity is not only a matter of discipline and restraint. Uh, much more it is an expression of our nearness to Christ and walking in such a way that his character is revealed in us. I have to tell you, the world is aching for that expression. The world needs to see evangelistically, they need to see something different in the body of Christ, something different in our spirit, uh, Christians who are struggling with their own faith and the integrity of their walk, they need to see something different in the spirit that manifests within the church. But most importantly, we pursue sanctification not for the byproduct of affecting others, although that is part of it. We pursue righteousness because it brings glory to God. We should seek after a life that is new and different and expresses the integrity of Christ, because through this, he is glorified. And, you know, as fallen people saved entirely by the gift of grace and through no merit of our own, it's one of the few ways, if not the only way, that we can give any measure of glory to God. We offer so little to God in product. His grace so exceeds anything we summon up from ourselves to give to him. But the one thing that I think can and does glorify God is when we manifest his likeness. And just as his presence changes people, so does his likeness in us affect people, and he will use that as part of the way in which he draws others to himself. I don't want to clutter that up with a defiled heart, with the impediment of sin affecting my heart and mind. I I don't want to demean the great name of Christ. Regrettably, I have at times. Regrettably, I've had hardened periods. I've had wrong conduct. I've been separated from Christ through sin. And for periods of time, I have not walked in integrity and righteousness. Maybe you can relate to that. But the fact that we can share that common experience should in no way encourage us to commiserate with each other and say, well, let's just, you know, we're doing the best we can do. We're sinful. We're flesh. We're only flesh. There's nothing more we can do. Hey, Paul wrote in Romans, he asked the question, he said, shall we continue to sin so the grace may abound more? May it never be. How can those who have died to sin, Paul wrote, continue to live in it? It's our admonition, it is our encouragement that life can be expressed differently because the life of Christ resides in us. He is the light, he is the bread, he is the living water. And we must be careful to partake of him and not some other source of sustenance. Make this coming time a time of reflection and self-examination. You can't do it on your own. You can't look at yourself and say, well, I'm doing pretty well or I'm doing pretty poorly. You must be in the Word. The Word is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word will expose us to ourselves. God already sees us, and He will use the Word and he will empower the word by his spirit to show us our evaluation as king david prayed he will show us our righteousness and integrity and i pray that for all of us that we have a growing disdain for sin a hatred for it a quick climate of repentance that exists around us and that we seek to put away sin quickly and that in contrast to that hatred of sin we have a great love and desire for righteousness, so much so that we can hardly bear anything but to pursue it. I pray that as we look into the new year, that we don't just deal with bad habits. We deal with that ongoing transformation of the heart in such a way that God can work within us through our discipline and our pursuit of his word and our listening for the spirit and our submission. Lord, help us not to become hardened, calloused. Help us, Lord, to not be content with this world, but to seek after the the goodness that you are, the fullness that you are. God, I pray it would be so. So let's meet again next week. We'll have one more meeting before the holidays. I won't be meeting with you on Christmas week. But um, next week we'll be together, and let's talk about this uh, a little further and look into not only next year but tomorrow maybe, even today. How do we begin to place ourselves on this track of sanctification, this progressive movement toward the glory of God? Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for this truth of your word. We pray, indeed, that you would examine us and prompt us, God, with an urgency to respond, that we might seek to glorify you and that we might seek to put away the wrongness that is in our hearts quickly and to pursue the character that you have conveyed to us, Lord. What a gentle and loving, powerfully... Uh, uh, conveyed character that you brought to us lord show us lord how to live help us to live in a way that elevates your great name and confesses your great gospel to those around us lord help and guide us we pray lord as only you can do we ask in jesus name amen thank you and i will see you next week god bless you